So today is uh, 4XL, and uh, excited that you got to come and be a part of this with us this morning. Um, and those who are going to be listening online uh, a little later, we're excited to be able to present this and, and allow uh, everybody to be able to experience what's going to happen. So we're, what it is is four mini-sermons, uh, ten minutes each, that's the Roman numeral 10, 4XL, young leaders uh, that, are, that are here at Legacy City that are excited to come and bring a word um, these guys uh, are, uh, some of them are on staff, some of them are interns, some of them are in uh, college seminary or Bible college, and, and they're all uh, just growing and, and pursuing God. Uh, many of them are, are pursuing him for future uh, careers in ministry, and so uh, so really excited that they get to come and they get to bring the word, that they get to open God's word with you, and uh, for, for some of them, this might be their, their outside of their wheelhouse. Uh, some of these, some of these guys, they're not uh, necessarily, um, they don't consider themselves to be upfront speaker kind of people. Uh, but they all said that they felt led to do this. They felt uh, like this was something that God had had, had kind of placed in front of them, and a great opportunity uh, for them to come and share. And so, uh, I know for me, I'm really excited to hear from them. Uh, I'm going to be over here taking notes, and I'm going to be not not to like criticize later, just so you know, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm taking notes because I want to learn, and uh, and I want to. I want to hear from you. I believe God's given you each a very specific and poignant message for today, and I'm really excited to hear what that message is going to be. And so, uh, so they're going to be coming up. We're gonna, I think we're going to have two, and then we're going to have uh, I think a little break in a song, and then we're going to have two more. And so I'm uh, really excited to go ahead and introduce our first one, which is Drew Unruh. He's one of our uh, interns, so go ahead and give him a hand, and let's uh, listen to what God has put on his heart for today. Legacy City Church. Good morning. I uh, want to go ahead and thank uh, thank Robbie for uh, the opportunity to be up here, and I think I can speak for uh, all of our speakers this morning that uh, thank you so much for the honor to speak. Um, very, very excited to be here again. Uh, my name is Drew Unruh. Uh, I am the Assimilation and Communications Intern here at Legacy City. Uh, I've probably also been attending Legacy City for the least amount of time uh, of, everybody, of everybody here. Um, but first of all, uh, I came to the Lord in a truly life-changing way when I was 17 years old, under Pastor Robbie, by the way. Uh, but a few sort of things. Uh, I've always been a skeptic. Uh, I'm sure uh, there are at least a few people in here uh, that can identify with that. What I experienced with Jesus and how I thought about the world around me were not originally connected in the same way that I've come to, under, I've come to understand now. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anybody in here uh, that may feel that way this morning. If you are, I want you to know something up front. I get it. And if I may say, it's likely more than most people in this room today. I have been there. I have wrestled with very difficult things. And let me tell you right now, I am here for you. The elders of this church are here for you. Pastor Robbie is here for you. This community is here for you, period. God does not mind your questions. He is not caught off guard, and he is not afraid to have to answer things that some people in our world think may completely take us out of the game. If you have never read the book of Habakkuk, uh, again, it's always been my favorite book of the Bible, uh, the, well, the name of the Bible at least, uh, I would say that you definitely should, seriously. Uh, anyway, this book is probably one of the most honest conversations had between God and man throughout all of Scripture. The manner at which Habakkuk approaches God, the way he rhetorically storms into the throne room, so to speak, is not something typical that we see in the books of the prophets. Habakkuk literally questions God about how he is running things in our world. 
I don't know about anybody else, but on reading and studying this book, I was like, wow, he sure is bold. But equally, wow, someone in scripture thousands of years ago had the exact same questions as I did. Questions like in Habakkuk 1-2 saying, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Or I have experienced great tragedy in my life. God, are you really hearing my prayers? Or in Habakkuk 1.13 saying, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Or God, you are so good and you're in control of our world. Why do you allow good things to happen to bad people and bad things to happen to good people? Now, some quick background on the book, because, uh, again, we have to keep going. Uh, now, the exact date of the authorship of this book is a little bit unknown, but the likelihood lies near the end of the kingdom of Judah. Now, this is before the exile. Babylon is about to overthrow the people of God, the covenant people who have been promised so many things. The purpose of this book shows us a conversation between Habakkuk and God that is meant to explore and seek to understand God's justice on an essential level as his nature plays out in history. Now, I want to address this up front. Some of you may not know. I'm currently in Bible college right now, uh, Eternity Bible College. It's in Simi Valley, California. Uh, studying scripture right now is quite literally my job. Um, most of my days are spent with my nose in scripture, discussing it and dissecting what this passage and what that passage uh, are meaning to say, etc. cetera. Uh, I care very much about knowing what I can about God through a dedicated studying of scripture. But as almost painful it is, as it is for me to say that when we really get at what the book of Habakkuk means to teach us is this. Habakkuk's intention was to show us that our questioning and knowing has a limit. And while we seek, the fear of the Lord is the beginning and end of all purposeful wisdom as it applies to our lives here on earth. Now, to some of you, this point may be obvious, but to others, like myself, uh, this is something I have a very hard time submitting myself to. I fully believe and hold faith in that prior statement being true, but it hurts me a little bit, saying, God, if, I, if you have called me to study scripture in, in an intense and passionate way, yet there are some things that we will never be able to access about who you are or why you do what you do in our world, well, what's the point? But here's where the paradox comes in. Scripture was given to us for a very specific reason, for us to know about God, what he has done in our world, and how his covenant people have engaged with him throughout history. I would submit that we can understand everything that scripture has to tell us. Our questions that go beyond scripture, however, we may or may, may not be able to figure out. But if it is within scripture, we can know what it means. Now, among the most important things that we learn from books like Habakkuk, uh, is that a healthy, reverent fear of the Lord is necessary to honor God appropriately. In God's first reply to Habakkuk, again, replying to chapter 1, verse 2, and this is in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Now, we know that God loves us and that he provided a way of salvation for all of us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, have you come to the terms with the true magnitude of the extent of God's power? This is the, way, this is the same God that shaped and formed our world, the creator of life 
and force behind history, we would all be foolish to not have at least some sense of fear to a power like this. We see in Proverbs something many of you have probably heard before, but I want to revisit this statement and consider if you have come to terms with this. Proverbs 9.10 saying, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. To all of us seeking to know the Lord on a deeper, more intimate level, to gain insight and wisdom to live God-honoring lives in this world, submit yourselves to the fear of the Lord. This idea of reverent fear is not one to play around with, but it is also not something to live in constant terror of, for we know that God is love, 1 John 4, 7. Now, I want to go back to this idea of being in wonder and being astounded by the work of of God in our lives. Even though the people of Israel were going to be facing great adversity, even though they were going to be receiving righteous judgment for their failures, we see something very, very important at the end of this book. After Habakkuk comes forth with some very difficult things to try and tackle throughout the first two chapters. Go read them. They're incredible. The way the book ends is so crucial in understanding not only how we should be approaching God, but the beginning of true wisdom in our world. The fear of the Lord. Habakkuk is given knowledge of what will be happening during the time of Jerusalem's destruction uh, and when they and when they will be taken into exile. We see him pray at the beginning of chapter 3, starting in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Similar to how Moses does this in Exodus 32, Habakkuk proclaims to the Lord, he is more than aware and submits to his awesome and sovereign power over the events that are about to hit the people of Israel really hard. But Habakkuk calls on God's perfect mercy after surrendering surrendering himself to the fact that his perfect justice must come about also. In the midst of questions, difficult questions, about how God engages with our world and how we should be responding to what we see in our world, What stands above them all is an identity as someone in relationship with God. The fear of the Lord stands high above all things as the truest form of wisdom we can obtain. Now I know we have to wrap this up, so I'll be quick. I could teach out of Habakkuk all day. There's so much still in those first two chapters that we could look at. But in the last several verses of the book, the prophet leaves us with this resounding declaration in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We all come from different backgrounds, from different circumstances, from different traumas and difficulties. Some have leaned on God for support and security more than others. But I want to challenge you in this. Have you really come to realize and appreciate our needed fear of the Lord? Do you have a sense of honor and reverence for the God of our world that not only do you immediately do we immediately bend our knee or or fall on our face before him like the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel, but we declare fully and total joy in the God that granted us eternal salvation? Like I said earlier, I am here for you. Our pastors are here for you. Our care team is here for you, not only for your questions and understanding, but for your relationship with God.
Thank you guys very much for your time. God bless. Can we get another round of applause for our brother Drew and that awesome message he brought us? Amen, amen. Um, as Drew said, I don't have a lot of time to dive into it, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump in. Um, as, uh, as some of you may know, my name is Jordan, and I am so honored and so humbled and so blessed to get to speak to you today. Uh, I was scared out of my mind when Robbie asked me to speak, and I was like, I wanted to say no, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> feel a little bit like Moses. This is the first time I've ever gotten to do anything like this because it's the first time I've ever actually said yes. Um, so uh, if uh, I'm asking for much mercy. Um, and the, the fear of the Lord is a powerful thing, amen? And, and as delivering it, I, I feel a lot of it, so I, I'm <laughs> excited. Um, okay, I'm going to jump right into it uh, with a question, and you can raise your hand. This is fine. It's interactive. Have any of you in here ever, ever struggled with the way you react to things. I think if you didn't, you're a robot. So I think <laughs> that's probably true. Or, or you're awesome. Who knows? Um, uh, I just want to let you know that by the end of this message, this little sermonette, uh, that by the power of the word of the Lord, I can show you a tangible way to not improve your reactivity, but to transform your reactivity. Um, my main point today is... Is it on the screen? I don't know if I said that. But you spill what is filled. Hey, that's cool. Um, <laughs> you spill what is filled. Um, I'm going to move into my illustration. But before that, if you guys would like to switch your Bibles to Colossians 3, 1 through 2. So we're, we'll be spending a lot of time in Colossians 3. Uh, well, not much time. Ten minutes. Um uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 2 is, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Uh, just to emphasize those two words at the beginning, if then. This passage is for those of us who have been raised with Christ, who have accepted the free gift and the, the wonderful blessing that is salvation, that isn't something that's done by us, but it's a free gift of God that is given to us. By the power of his death and resurrection, he's given that to us. But the rest of this passage focuses on the work for us who are risen within him. Uh, another question, have you or anybody else, this is basically the same as first question, but a little bit more specific. Have you or anybody else that you know ever said this phrase, it's because of them that I reacted the way I did. Yes. It's because of you that I kicked a door. It's because you scoffed at me that I cussed instead of words. It's because of you that I just got really angry and thought really negative thoughts or was petty. Yes. I think it's fair that we've probably all done these things. Um, here's a statement that I love by uh, uh, one of my favorite pastors to watch from. His name is Jeff Durbin. And he says, as Christians... We believe that if it came out of you, it's because it existed within you. All right, so who likes Starbucks? I love Starbucks. They have the best water in the world. It's triple filtered. Um, <laughs> uh, let's, let's say that I have a glass of water, right? This is a glass of, well, mostly water. Is that half full or half empty? What would you guys say? I say half full. Amen. Um, 
uh, let's say I have a glass of water, right? And then I knock it over. I'm not going to knock it over. So I need some. But let's say, let's say I knock it over, right? And then there's water on this, on this floor up here. And uh, some of you guys probably remember this. Uh, don't, don't spoil it for the rest of us. Say, so I knock that glass of water onto the floor, and now there's water on the floor. Why is there water on the floor? Oh, somebody's smart. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people will say, because I knocked the cup over, right? The answer is, because there was already water in the cup. If I didn't want water to spill out on the floor, I shouldn't have put water in the cup. We need to stop ultimately blaming the knocking over of the glass. As Christians, there is a focus on what was already inside our hearts to begin with, which in this example, our hearts is like the glass glass of water. Um, we know this from a, a pretty funny passage, but very so powerful uh, word that, that Jesus brings us in Matthew 15, 18. Um, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I know this. I went to Waffle House last night. Um, <laughs> but what comes, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is true. I learned this one real, real good. Um, uh, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. In a contrast to this, the world encourages us to merely better our reactions by taking steps of positive behavior when faced with difficult emotional situations where we may react in a bad way, i.e., take some deep breaths, go for a long walk, take a cold shower. That would probably make me mad. But take a cold shower, slow down, go see a movie, call a friend, all these things. These are very, very good things. They're not bad things. Um, but ultimately, they're only solving surface-level issues. They're only solving the symptoms that are coming from the heart. Because we, if then you are raised with Christ, because we are believers, we follow in Christ's example, which is to deal with the heart. Uh, jumping forward to Colossians 3.5, Paul gives us a very clear list of some specific things to rid ourselves of, to clear, clear the things that we need to get out of us. Um, Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, which is lust. Uh, there's another phrase, but I forgot what it was. More like lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, but you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put to death. That phrase, put to death, rid ourselves of this filth, free our hearts, the glass, free our hearts of things such as this. That way, there is no dirty water in the glass that can spill out. Um, <laughs> but we can't simply just not have dirty water in the glass. There needs to be something ins instead, uh, i.e. triple filtered Starbucks water. Um, we need heavenly things, things that are above, as in verse 2 states, inside our glass, ready to be poured out. Let's jump ahead to Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Um, put on then, and real quick, this, those two words together, put on. I love these words because it is action put in our hands, our responsibility. I know sometimes I will go through life praying that God would just free me from my sinful ways, 
praying that he will make me a more godly person. But the reality is he wants me to be part of that process. So putting on a shirt, putting on shoes, putting on pants. You can't pray on pants. You've got to put them on. <laughs> Am I right? Is that wrong? I'm pretty sure. I mean, by the almighty power of God that we learned earlier, he could do it if he wanted to, but he wants us to put on our own pants. Uh, uh, anyway, back to the Bible. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Think of this as actively putting clean water into our glass. These things that Paul says to put on are things that don't just fix surface-level issues. They cut through to the heart, transforming us from the inside out. The last, last little section I'm going to talk about um, is on the disciple Stephen, whose story wrecks me. Um, his story is, is a tough one. But when he learned the greatness and the power of Christ, he was gung-ho. He couldn't help but preach his name, preach his gospel in the streets of the temples. And guess what? The Jews, the Pharisees, and the priests didn't like it. They hated it because it was going against what they had already set up. So with that in mind, this is right after Jesus' um, resurrection and, and going up to heaven and the, the power of the Spirit pouring out and, and, and his followers going out and preaching. And so Stephen is one of the people who is preaching. And this is right after he got done preaching at the temple steps. And the priests and the Pharisees and the Jews were, were super mad at him. Um, so Acts 7, 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, this is Stephen, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Again, going back to Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he had his eyes on things above. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That sentence, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. His reaction, right, his reaction came right after the trial, the stoning, the, the killing. His glass was knocked over and love poured out. Why? Because his glass was full of heavenly things, things above. He was worshiping God and not himself. Colossians 3 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Um, as this time, the, the band can come back up. I've never gotten to say that. I've only had it said to me. Uh, <laughs> during this time, the band can come back up. Uh, and I just want to remind you guys, in this, in this state of where our country is, is, is fighting us to fear, it's pushing us to fear, for good, for good reason. It, it's, it's a tough time. But if then, if then, we're believers, let's focus our eyes on 
above, not on things of this earth. This is a daily practice. This isn't just when the coronavirus comes to strike. This isn't just when we, when we feel like it's time to. It is a daily practice to put to death what is earthly within us and put on love and heavenly things. To remove the dirty water from our glass and fill it with clean and pure and God-honoring triple-filtered water. That way, <laughs> when difficulties show up, your only option is to pour out what is right. I was talking to a uh, 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 pastor friend of mine, uh, Brandon Henson. You guys probably already know him. He's pretty awesome. Um, he said, what happens when a grape is squeezed? The only thing that happens is juice pops out. That's the only thing that can happen. Um, so let our lives be that way. When, when we're squeezed, when our cup is knocked over, let the goodness and the purity and the, the awesomeness of God be our reaction, not heavenly things, not our natural instincts. You spill what you fill. So let Christ and Christ be alone be what's inside of us and what spills out. I'm going to pray. We can stand and worship together. God, thank you so much for your goodness and your greatness and the fact that we can trust you. We can believe in you. Uh, I pray that we would right now rid our hearts of any distractions, of any anything that's keeping us from you, any earthly things. And in this moment, 2020 vision, that we will look right at you. We will see your face. That's what we're called to do, to put on kindness, compassionate hearts, love. Right now we can put on love. And through that love we can worship you. We praise you. We, we honor you. And in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing with us. How's it going, church? Uh, that... <laughs> that, uh, that teaser was not for me. It has nothing to do with what I'm about to speak, which is what we call a transition. So <laughs> just allowed me to get up here. But uh, I can definitely say that God has been uh, moving, though, because uh, I don't know if Robbie did this on purpose, but, I mean, that song and uh, definitely didn't coordinate with any of these guys, but all the previous sermonettes have uh, sort of set me up. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Jordan. Uh, normally play the drums, but unfortunately for you, they are, thank you, <laughs> unfortunately for you, they're letting me speak today, um, and uh, we're going to talk about a big theological word that uh, I, hopefully most of you know, it, and if you don't, it's a great word to have in your arsenal, uh, it's sovereignty, and what that essentially boils down to is kingship or uh, rulership, uh, so there's two kinds of sovereignty that we deal with, there's God as the sovereign, um, and Obviously, God is infinite. His power is infinite. So his sovereignty, his rulership, extends to all things. Um, the extent of that, we can talk about after, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, got some coupons. Um, <laughs> oh, those are over here. Okay. Um, but and we also deal with a limited sovereignty, uh, which is our earthly rulers. We can see that, you know, they're still kings today. So mo mo mostly we see that in presidents. Um, and we're going to talk about the story of Esther and how it relates to God's sovereignty. Um, because this is a book, it's very unique in the Bible. It's the only book um, that doesn't mention God or Jesus or anything spiritual explicitly. Um, in Esther, it's sort of implied because everything that's happening is so unlikely and so incredible that God has to be working. And so Esther's a good reflection of our daily lives because no one, uh, you know, Moses didn't, uh, Moses would tell people, 
God said this, God did that. And then you read the Old Testament, you see they explicitly mention that uh, God gave people this victory. But that's not really how it looks in our life. We have to interpret uh, our experience. We have to say, okay, obviously God is moving because how else did that happen? Um, but so that's, so that's just a good case study to look at and see how uh, obedient people of God uh, live out daily li- live out daily life and see God working even when it's not explicitly mentioned. Um, so if you don't know the story of Esther, I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, it's about ten chapters, and uh, I don't really have a minute to cover each chapter. <laughs> for sure, that would be nice though. Um, so I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis of it. Uh, Esther is uh, about the Jews that are living in Persian exile. So they've been in exile for a hundred years. Um, they've grown up in, the, you know, the Jews that are living now have grown up in exile. They're considered second-class citizens. And, uh, you know, the character of the story, Esther, she's even lower. She was a Jewish orphan. So she's a second-class citizen. She's an orphan. And in Persia, this is a deeply sexist society. So she is at the bottom tier when it comes to class. Um, somehow, through obviously a work of God, um, she becomes the queen of Persia. So now we have this weird dichotomy of uh, the Jews are a lower class, and now one of them is the queen. Um, at the same time, her adoptive father happens to uh, tick off the right-hand man of the king. Uh, the right-hand man of the king comes rolling through town, and uh, Esther's adoptive father does not bow before him. And he says, why aren't you bowing? Everybody bows before me. And says, because I'm a Jew, and we don't bow before men, we only bow before God. So this right-hand man gets uh, a scheme going, and they plan to kill all the Jews. Um, nobody knows that. Nobody in the royal court knows that Esther's a Jew, so she thinks she will be safe. Um, Esther's adopted father, name was uh, Mordecai. Mordecai goes to Esther and says, "Look, you need to talk to the king because there's a plot. They're going to kill all the Jews." And she says, "I can't go up to the king. The queen and the king were not equal. This is a deeply sexist society. Uh, if she approached the king without being called into his presence, she could be killed." Um, so she was she was scared, and that's what she said. Um, Mordecai responds with what we're going to look at today. Mordecai responds with a word of hope. If we could, there we go. Uh, Mordecai responds, <laughs> and this, if you've ever heard uh, Esther, uh, you've definitely heard these verses. It's four thirteen through fourteen, uh, and I'm just going to paraphrase. It's a little bit funky, um, but Mordecai simply responds, "Look, Esther." You're going to die anyway. Do you think someone from the neighborhood doesn't remember that you're a Jew? And when they come to kill us all, they're going to be like, hey, uh, but the queen's a Jew, so maybe don't kill us all? Um, No, they're going to point that out, and they're going to get caught, and you're going to get killed. And so he says, you might as well try to get us all spared, because that's really the only way you're going to save your life. Um, And he also responds with this, which is weird, because if I was trying to get somebody on my side to go risk their life by talking to the king, I think I would have sent her a gift. I think I would have sugarcoated it. Maybe I uh, got on my hands and knees and cried. Um, but instead, he says, hey, listen, if you don't do this, God's still going to deliver us. Deliver us. And that's bold. That's, that's, that's really bold. I hate to take away the story from Esther, but we're really going to focus on Mordecai. Um, and then after that, he says, again, slightly unconfidently, and who knows, maybe you are, maybe you're in this position of royalty just for uh, such a time as this. Again, it's a phrase a lot of you have heard uh, when we talk about Esther. But uh, so, th- so there we have it, a rather, rather um, non-sugar-coated response to Esther, just trying to get her wheels turning. Uh, and I think that this, these verses serve 
uh, as an example of how we should hope today. Because, you know, I, I know for some of us, it feels like we're in very uncertain times. We're in an election year. Um, and we're also dealing with a pandemic that's affecting health and business. Um, and it feels like in a matter of a few days, the whole world, especially the whole sports world, uh, has fallen apart. Um, and so we can look at Mordecai's response to Esther here as how we should hope in uncertain times. So number one, uh, Mordecai's example of hope, he does not presume to have the plan figured out. He's not saying, uh, my hope is that I'm rooting for Jesus to do things my way. Everybody's going to be okay. Uh, Esther's going to talk to the king and it's going to work out. He says, I don't know how it's going to happen. Esther, I think you should do this. But if it doesn't work and if you don't go along and talk to the king, God is still going to deliver his people. He believes in God's goodness. He believes in the promises that he heard before the Jews went to exile in Persia. But he's not presuming to know how it's all going to d- go down. Um, so I would encourage you not to uh, you know, lay out a plan before God and say, God, you've got to follow this plan, and that's my hope. Rather, hope should be centered on trusting in God to see you through. Uh, and secondly, Mordecai says, even though I don't know that this is the plan, we have a clear action of what faithful obedience would look like. Uh, Esther, you have an opportunity to help. So even though I don't know what the consequences are, I don't know if it'll work and I don't know if you'll do it, um, but I still think you should be obedient and I still think you should defend God's people and reach out to the king. So there's, there's, there's one thing. If you don't know the plan, still have hope and trust that God's going to pull you through. And if you kind of have an idea of the plan, but you don't know the consequences, you don't know if you stand up to your boss uh, and don't report false numbers or uh, don't, you know, don't dump that waste out on public property or something. Uh, are you going to be fired? I don't know. But Mordecai, you know, it, it did work out for Mordecai. Uh, and that's great. The Jews were saved because Esther did reach out to the king. But at that, at that turning point, he didn't know all the specifics. Um, and so as we wrap up, I want to talk about what this hope, wh- why he has this hope. What is he filled with? Like Jordan said, Scripture filled with what comes out. And he was obviously filled with hope. So we're going to talk about two verses from Isaiah. He was a pre-exile prophet. Mordecai definitely knew the words of Isaiah. Um, So in Isaiah, Mordecai heard that God is the true sovereign, that even if the king decrees that all the Jews are going to be exterminated, he knows that God, the true sovereign, the true king, uh, has decreed this. I am God. I am God. There is none like me. And I have declared the end from the beginning. And things that have not already happened, I have made certain. So while this one king is decreeing all the Jews are going to die, Mordecai says, no. I have a God who has decreed things that are certain. And he's promised that Jews will be delivered, that redemption is coming. And we're promised the same thing in Christ. In this uncertain time um, and in these uncertain day-to-day actions that we have, we have hope in redemption through Jesus Christ the same way that Mordecai believed and Esther believed for deliverance. Uh, and lastly, if we can reflect on this uh, as we look throughout you know, our day-to-day life, I don't know what you're going through. God knows what you're going through. If you could be filled with this, um, then like Waymaker said, uh, know that God is moving even when we don't see it. Isaiah also writes in Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness 
And I will provide streams in the desert, even when you don't see it. <laughs> so uh, I have gone six seconds over. So I guess it's time for Jacob, and he has six seconds left. I, I apologize. Thank you. Where is the podium? Because I have papers. Man, that's tall. We need one lower. So here we go. Good morning. My topic, I'm just going to dive right in, is the awe of God. And it was really cool. Drew kind of touched on the personal, uh, the word, of course it escapes my mind, uh, holiness. Personal holiness was kind of what Drew was touching on and how, like, in light of who God is, the fear that comes with who God is, that we should respond accordingly. And I'm going to kind of be talking about that, but also in the context of what we do here as a body of a belie- as a body of believers, as the church, how the awe of God should affect us. So the dictionary definition of the awe of God is something that causes reverential respect uh, with wonder or fear. And so the fact is, everyone in this room, doesn't matter how old you are, uh, you have been in awe of something at some point in your life. Um, I don't know if anyone in here has been to Paris and seen the Eiffel Tower, but I've heard from people who've been to Paris and seen the Eiffel Tower. It is just this this awing moment of seeing this humongous structure that's is so beautiful and is so uniquely designed and just the time that it was built is just like this awe-inspired thing. Like your jaw just drops, it hits the ground. It's like, this is so cool. And it, it creates this, this sense of wonder when you see it. Uh, I personally have been to Niagara Falls, and it's kind of like that Grand Canyon moment where you see a picture of something and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then you get there and you're just like, this is huge. This is beautiful. Um, it, it is just so awe-inspiring. It is so cool. And we've all had those moments where we have just been like, like in awe of something. And kind of the, the point that I want to get to with that is when we see something that is awing, naturally a response normally follows. Um, for example, my dad and I love to look at stars. Like it's just something that we like to do. I, I just like to look up and see uh, the, I don't know how many stars there are. I mean, thousands, under understatement of the lifetime. Uh, the All the stars, and, you know, we just look up and see the vastness and, and just the craziness of what that is. And what did we as people do when we looked up and saw that? There was a reaction to that, and it was, let's go explore that. Um, another reaction we had was, um, I, when I was in high school, I played soccer, and I wasn't that good, like not that great or anything like that. But what I would do before games is I, was wa- I would watch highlights of Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi and like the two best players in the world. And I could never do anything that they could do, but I would see like this amazing, like super insane goal and I would be inspired to, to try to embody that and to try to copy that. And so this is kind of my challenge for us, church. Do we live in awe of God when we, when we see who he is, when we look at who he is in scripture, when we respond to that is what we do according, it, 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 are we living in awe of God? Um, so uh, before we answer this, we have to first look at who God is. And Drew did such a good job setting that up. Habakkuk. Um, so I'm just going to read really quickly Psalm, uh, Psalms 8, some verses in Psalms 8, and should be on the screen. Uh, it says, Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. 
Because of your adversaries, you've established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name. You can't sum up God in a sentence. You can't sum up God in a paragraph. You can't sum up God in a book. But can we just think about how all how awing God is for a second? I, I, I can't, per, I literally can't portray it to you because there's no example that I could do. But if you are a believer in this room, my, my hope and my desire is that God has revealed himself to you and that the majesty that this verse talks about in Isaiah, it talks about uh, he, he comes into the throne room of God and the train of his robe is filling the room. And the train of the robe, it, the longer the train, typically the more uh, deserving of worship you are, the more deserving of glory you are, um, is kind of our understanding of that. And his train is just filling like, it, this is God. He is awe-inspiring. So I can't dwell on that, but hopefully we understand that truth. Um, and in light of who God is, in light of the aweingness of who he is, there should be a response from us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in him. Once we see who God is, once we, he reveals himself to us, once we become a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, and once we are created new in Christ Jesus, there's a natural reaction that happens when seeing God. Um, in, in, in scripture, it talks about people who uh, had a, a, a God appeared in a theophany, or in other words, he just revealed himself in a way to people in scripture. And it talks about Moses coming down from Sinai, and people could literally see the glory of God radiating off his face. And I'm not saying that necessarily that's going to happen to us. Um, I haven't seen that happen yet. But what I'm saying is when we have an encounter with this God of the Bible, we are going to look different. And as I said, Drew hit the personal holiness aspect of that. But I want us to focus um, as a church, what about our gathering time and what we do as a church would look different. And so here at Legacy City, we're committed to three things. We say this just about every Sunday. We're committed to worship, prayer, and the word. And I just want to take a look at these themes in light of God's glory. What, what would look different? And, I, and I'm not challenging what we do as a church. I'm not saying we're not filled with awe of God. I want to be clear with that. I just want us to uh, introspectively, I think is the word I'm looking for, look within ourselves and say, am I displaying the fact that I am in awe of who God is? And so first we have worship. Revelation 4 and some other verses in Revelation, I'm kind of pulling from a few different ones, but it, it says, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who who is and who is coming, our Lord, our God, you are worthy to receive the glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Church, when we are in awe of God, our worship looks, looks different than what worship looks like in a lot of churches today. And obviously, worship is not just a song, you know. It's not just songs of praise. Worship is anything that we do that glorifies God. Worship is literally giving worth to something. We're giving worth to God. But church, as we worship through song, just in, in terms of our context, what we usually mean when we say worship, 
just think about yourself. Think about your heart. I want you to think about how you worship. Are you doing it in light of, of God? Are you doing, like, think about how amazing and wonderful and majestic God is. Is the way we worship, is it deserving of that? Like, is he deserving of the worship that I gave him this morning? Um, we sang, what, uh, Waymaker or something earlier. And I, I, at chapel, at North Greenville, we have chapel twice a week. And when we sing that song, very typically at chapel, everyone else, me included, this is so convicting to myself as well, we just sit with our hand in our pockets and Waymaker, miracle work. And it's like, this is the God who has made a way. This is the God who actively works miracles. And I'm sitting here like it's just this ritualistic thing. And this is the God who lives within me. What am I doing? Am I truly in awe of God? So we can't dwell on that, but does our worship look like we are in awe of God? Prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Um, scripture, scripture is saying that we should bring all things before the Lord, and it should be made known to, made known to him. Why does scripture say that it should be made known? Uh, good news uh, is because God already knows the requests that are on our heart. He knows us um, inwards and outwards. He knew us before we were created. He formed us in our, in our mother's womb. As Psalms 139 says, he knows us, church, and this is good news. And he is waiting for us to bring our request to him. The fact is, the God of the universe, the one who is deserving of all, knows the requests and situations on our heart. And he has the power to answer any request on our heart. So I ask, if we are truly in awe of God and his power and his ability to already know us, why is prayer often one of the later things on our minds when something good, bad, when all situations happen? I'm going to be honest. I think the first time that I prayed for um, this virus, I think, might have been in that seat. Um, and that, that's just me being honest right there and being open in front of you. And it's because uh, I know God has it, and, and I know that on my heart, but, but why haven't I gone to prayer about the other countries who are struggling with it? Um, he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And again, this God, he knows what is on our heart, um, that little situation that you're dealing with. Perfect example. Uh, last night, I was, we had Dean out this weekend. Are you good? Okay, we're, we're moving. We're moving. Uh, had Dean out this weekend, and I was snoring last night because I snore. And Zach was like, man, I just had to pray because I needed sleep. And he's like, and then he just stopped snoring. And as, as dumb as that sounds, e even the little things that we were talking about in Dean out yesterday, God knows what's on our heart, and he cares about those things as well. That doesn't mean he's going to answer everything, and I can't get into all that. But ultimately, God is going to um, do what is according to his glory and his will. And then finally, uh, the word. Personally, I believe that the word of God is, in, is inerrant, meaning that it is without error. But I also mean that inerrancy means that every word in the Bible can be read as if God is speaking directly to us. That means in John 3.16, when God says, uh, when it says, for God so loved the world, that literally means that God is saying that he loves the world. If we are in awe of God, why would we not want to hear what he has to say? Why do we neglect his word? Scripture is applicable in all aspects of our walk. Second um, Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. If we are in awe of God, if we believe that he speaks through his word, 
and we believe that God's word completes us, then why do we often neglect to read his word? I believe that these three areas in the rest of our lives are greatly impacted by our view of God and the fact that we are either in awe of him or we're not in awe of him. In school, we're reading this book, and it's a Dangerous Calling, and it's written for future ministers or current ministers, and it's meant to warn the dangers of going into ministry. And this whole chapter is just about losing your awe and doing what you do in light of just being in awe of God. And this isn't just for pastors. This is for everyone. It's going to be very clear. So I'm just going to read this paragraph, then I'm going to read one more passage, and then Ben will do their thing. Um, It says, Awe of God should be the reason I do what I do with my thoughts. It should be the reason I desire what I desire. Awe of God should be the reason I treat my wife the way I do and parents and children in the manner that I do. Awe of God should be the reason I function the way I do at my job or handle my finances the way I do. It should structure the way I think about physical possession and personal position and power. Awe of God should shape and motivate my relationship with my extended family and neighbors. Awe of God should give direction to the way I live as a citizen of the wider community. It should form the way I think about myself and my expectations of others. Awe of God should lift me out of the darkest moments of discouragement and be the source of my exuberant celebrations. Awe of God should make me more self-aware and more mournful of my sin while it makes me more patient with ten- and more patient with and tender toward the weakness of others. It should give me courage. I would have no other wisdom um, or way to know when I'm out of my league. All of God is meant to rule every domain of my existence. So us as a church, are we in awe of God? Are, when we do those three things, worship, prayer, and the word, are we doing it in light of who God is? Um, as scripture says, Psalm 95, three through seven says, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. He is deserving of our awe. And so I challenge us and I challenge myself as well. Let's live like it.